Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute, and the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. MCTs are teams of 4 to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission-critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Today I speak with Sean Holes, my good friend and now director of high performance at the NFL football team, the Cleveland Browns. Sean has worked for 30 years now in college sport, military special operations, and professional football. In our conversation, we discuss, of course, sports science and human performance, We talk about some of the myths of physical and mental performance, particularly in special operations, which is that my old military community or any special operations community has human performance all figured out, which we didn't and still don't, although it gets better and better every day in in every mission-critical team community that I'm aware of, but there's still a long way to go. Sean and I talk about skill acquisition and skill transition. We talk about staying a white belt every day. We briefly discuss the origin of one of the NCAA's first strength and conditioning programs in the country. We discuss Sean's path into into special operations and out of special operations into professional sports and how taking care of the human weapon system, as Sean described it to me, and being more intentional about human performance and mission-critical teams was something that was on his radar in 2007. We talk about how you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Sean talks about being around some of the great players in the NFL and the one thing that he noticed that they do. We talk about removing the word potential from your name, growing beyond your mentor, how elite teams and people do a couple of things really, really well. And Sean describes when I asked him, when you are screening for or going through selection and assessment or part of a high-performing team, and particularly one involved in activities that are long-duration effort with uh, periods of extreme high intensity, and in some cases where you, in a case of, mission critical teams where you're making your decisions in the core of your decisions in 300 seconds or less that what your primary responsibility as an individual in a team is is to build skills and knowledge mentally and with respect to physical movement and then work capacity you have to show that whatever it is your job skill is that you can do it in these four stages You can do it slow, then you can do it at speed, then you can do it at speed when fatigued, then you can do that skill fatigued, at speed, 
and under pressure and be able to do that skill consistently. Your job when joining or in or during the arc of your career on a mission-critical team is to be able to acquire and perform skills slow and then at speed and then at speed under fatigue and then at speed under fatigue and under pressure and to be able to do that consistently over and over again. And Sean goes on to talk about over the arc of the operator lifecycle or our career that the additional skill that, of course, comes with the ones that I've just mentioned is the ability to understand when to go hard and, and when to pull back and when to use those skills and that intensity effectively. I really enjoyed the conversation, as I always do, uh, with our guest and particularly with Sean, and I trust you will as well. So welcome back again after a short break for being on vacation. Welcome back to the team cast and enjoy my conversation with the Cleveland Browns, director of high performance, my friend, Sean Holes. First of all, Sean, thanks for being on the team cast. I know you've followed what the Mission Critical Team Institute has been doing for a long, long time. You and I have known each other for a long time. I wanted to have you on this show I'm not going to mention the other person's name, but of the two people that I know in the director of sports science or director of performance roles in professional sports, uh, my view, having spent all the time that I spent um, in special operations and moving around this area, you and this one other a person that we do some work with, I think are the best in the business. And what's unique for the audience about Sean's uh, relationship with us and and his experience, which we'll talk about here in a second, is that Sean spent um, a bunch of time as director of performance, sports science, strength and conditioning world inside of uh, special operations at multiple levels before he transitioned to professional sports. And so when we think about mission critical teams across the entire range, as you and I have spoken about, Sean, one of the things that I think in performance that really matters, and we'll get to this in a second after we do your background, is none of us can escape the clock. And so, you know, we start at some age, it might be 18, 20, 22, and we end up retiring at some age, whatever, you know, whatever time we transition out, but we're on this operator life cycle. And I want to spend most, so the audience knows where we're going here. I want to spend most of our time talking about physical and mental performance, mostly physio, though, across the operator life cycle, um, because obviously we have different needs at different stages. And I really want to talk about myths and urban legend stuff as well, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second, because you see people trying all kinds of crazy stuff that, you know, may or may not be helpful. But before we get into all that, Sean, just a baseline um, for the audience, feel free to start wherever you'd like, but dying to just get your background on how you either strategically got to where you are or stumbled into where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. I mean, uh, thanks for your kind words there, first of all, but, uh, um, and, uh, you know, getting to know you and Preston over the years, your, your friendship and, and professional relationship with, with me is, has made me grow leaps and bounds in a lot of different ways. So just thank you for, for you guys and your friendship. And then also, mission critical teams to hopefully I can still, you know, help contribute back to the, to the uh, population 
that I, that I love so much, but, uh, um, you know, really my, my background, it really did start when I was young. I, I was one of those just somewhat hyperactive kids and didn't necessarily direct my energies to the right places. Right. So, uh, like a lot of us just <laughs> started to get into the wrong, wrong groups and, and getting in trouble and everything. And then, you know, I, a guy that actually retired from the army moved to my hometown and, and got a bunch of kids to start lifting weights. And, um, uh, from a small town, just, it, it, it kind of just fit with the description of that area. Like, hard work equals results. And if you do more of it, you get more results. And uh, so it was something that just kind of clicked with me and helped me essentially turn my life around because I, I was going down some some dark paths. And, uh, and then I went to the University of Nebraska. And when I got there, uh, you know, again, a lot of my career paths just been attributed to just mentors, just luckily getting around good people and maybe recognizing what good looks like and tried to, to learn from those people. And, and so when I, when I got to university of Nebraska, I was a freshman and I was talking to another guy that happened to live in my dorm. And he was saying how he volunteered in the weight room and everything. And I was like, you can do that. Like, that's, that's really a job. You know, that was, you know, I didn't know, you know, I'm from a small farming community. So um so I went over and tried to volunteer and they said thanks but no thanks and walked me out and I went back over a few weeks later and they said thanks but no thanks and then fit slowly but surely I slipped my way into the door and and uh, at the time I was actually competing in weightlifting under one of the uh the uh strength coaches one of the assistant strength coaches was an assistant for the U.S. Olympic team hmm. Roger DeGarmo is his name he's since passed away but so that really helped, you know, me get exposed to the other strength coaches there because I was lifting under him and, and uh, um, you know, got some really, really good experience as a freshman and sophomore and then had an opportunity uh, that it just so happened that my, in my junior year, the strength coach that was overseeing baseball left for another job and they didn't really have anyone to take it. And uh, our baseball coach just kind of, he vouched for me and, uh, um, I got the, I got the job as a junior. I was basically coaching guys older than me and I wasn't even graduated. I wasn't certified, nothing, but I, had, wow. uh, I guess gained the respect and yeah, I mean, I guess along the way, you know, as I look back at that program, it was such a privileged program being at Nebraska. It was, you know, one of the first Boyd Epley was the first uh, full-time strength conditioning coach in, in uh, college. And so, and he started the NSCA and everything. So it was so mature when I was there and I didn't recognize it at the time. It just seemed like this is what you do kind of thing, you know? Hmm. And uh, um, so I learned a lot there, got a lot of opportunity. I worked with football and baseball mostly. Um, uh, then as I was going through the system, I kind of, you know, I really was rushing my career because I got started so early and got this experience to really run a program so early. And, and um, one of the strength coaches that was actually instrumental in getting me there or getting me involved with football and everything there was a guy named John Archer and he left and went to the University of Nevada. And uh, so he kind of recruited me out there and I was so loyal to him because he really did vouch for me just to get going in the strength conditioning department there 
And so uh, I took a job with him out at the University of Nevada. That was in uh, 2000, 2001, okay. around that area. And um, and so, uh, you know, going out there, that was an opportunity for me to take what I had learned at Nebraska and then almost develop it as my own, like take what I really wanted to bring and, and then, you know, also venture out, <clears throat> learn some different ways of doing things. And John was really supportive in that whole adventure as well. And then, you know, a year later, I had an opportunity to go to, to Hampton University out in Virginia as the head yep. strength coach. I was, wasn't even 25 yet, got the head strength coach job there. And, uh, you know, through that time, I'd always been involved in martial arts. I started Taekwondo as a, as a little kid and then got into Thai boxing and jiu-jitsu. And then when I moved out to Virginia and I was at Hampton, I met a bunch of the team guys there. A lot of guys have really? training at, at Gustavo Machado's at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I did some stuff at Group 2 and did some stuff at the command and, and everything. And then... Same thing. I feel like I was kind of like Forrest Gump, just Forrest Gumping my way through life. And some of the guys that were there were really instrumental in starting the human performance program uh, at Group Two. And so my name got thrown into that, and and that's really you know how I got got to Group Two was was basically through jujitsu and and. Sorry to interrupt and, you, Sean, but yeah. I want to I want to stop. I'll unpack. I'll explain Group Two here in a second. But before we get to that transition. Um, there's a couple things that you've already mentioned. You, you, as you said, like your start was so early and, um, you mentioned that you, you had that chance, uh, was it at Nevada? Yeah. Yeah. To do, to do some stuff on your own and take some things with you that you had learned at Nebraska and, and Nevada, the situation there was supportive of you taking some things and implementing. Is there anything that you think is useful that like, what did you take? there and implement that you can look back on and say, man, that really worked or that other thing I tried didn't work in this realm of whatever, strength and conditioning, human performance. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's <clears throat> when you first enter any profession, you think there's like only one way of doing something yeah. and that's how you learned. And then, and then your eyes get opened up and you're like, oh, there's so many different ways of doing this. And then as you get older, then you start to get back to there's only one way of doing this, you know, kind of thing. So that's really interesting. I, uh, I, I, I think after, I guess, reflecting on my Nebraska experience and then opening my, you know, horizon up to other possibilities, the, the Nebraska program at the time, I probably felt as I was, you know, just getting out, especially on the West coast, you have more exposure to different, you know, yeah. availability and, and, you know, the internet was just starting to mature then. So you could, you know, do some searches and find things and, and everything. But, um, uh, I would say the, one of the things that Nebraska did was the program itself was fairly, um, just, fundamentally you know sound but it was really basic at its yeah. core um but it was really well rounded in all the areas that it touched and mm -hmm. i think in my juvenile self as i was starting to get out and learn different ways you start to kind of like you know 
put your nose up a little bit and say, oh, what they were doing was so basic. And, and then, as you know, basically in any sports or anything, you know, as all you the basics, it, and it's greatness, greatness, it's <laughs> the greatest, the great people just do the basics really well. And, uh, and that's really what it ended up being is they were really well-rounded. They were, you know, the first program to have not only the first program to start a strength conditioning program, but then Boyd was so beyond his time with like how he, you know, who he hired and their expertise and was the first to hire a full-time nutritionist and, and all those things, you know, and, and like I said, they just did the basics really well and covered all the basics for the, for the, because I had never heard this before, Sean. You and I have never talked about this, just yeah. so I'm clear. Boyd Epley at Nebraska was the first collegiate full-time strength and conditioning program. Yeah, yeah. That's was, amazing. Uh, uh, Bob Devaney, he was a – Boyd was a track athlete there. He got injured. He hurt his back. And uh, uh, Boyd got into weightlifting and, and you know, some of the football players started working out with him and – Bob Devaney was the head coach at the time. Um, and these guys were, you know, at the national championship level. I mean, right yeah. after he got hired, they, they ended up winning the national championship, 71, 72, back to back. And, uh, you know, that Boyd always told me, he said, when he got hired, Bob Devaney said, you know, if any of the players get slower, you're fired. Because, you know, back then that was kind of the, the thing. Measure. That you were going to get muscle bound and too tight and slow. And so, um you know, Boyd started working with the players and got it going. And, and then, you know, there were other strength coaches around the country that were, that were training, you know, their collegiate athletes, but they're more part-time basis. And so Boyd wow. was really the first full-time person. And, uh, you know, when they started the NSCA, the National Strength Conditioning Association, that was really Boyd's attempt to just really uh, bring all the strength coaches together. All they really wanted to do is generate some sort of phone list so they could yeah. call each other and kind of talk shop back and forth. Yeah. And now it's, you know, I don't know how many years later, 30 some yeah. years later, it's, you know, this, this worldwide recognized organization, you know? So that's um, interesting. Yeah. 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 So you're doing jujitsu, um, in Virginia, you meet some guys from the community, from Naval Special Warfare, and the the and somehow you ended up. Uh, Sean mentioned Group Two a minute ago. At least in Naval Special Warfare, we have most of our teams are are, are on two coasts, the West Coast and the East Coast. And, and Sean's talking about the East Coast group of teams in in Little Creek, Virginia. So, what happened with that opportunity, Sean, to get inside the wire, so to speak? Yeah. So you know, same thing, right place, right time. Uh, uh, PVH was, you probably know who I'm talking about there was, was the Commodore and he himself had his own accident, didn't take care of himself. And, uh, then had, you know, a below the knee, what became a below the knee amputee. So in that he was getting tired as the Commodore of having, you know, different flavors of the month come in with different training regimes and guys would try it out. And then it was something new and the next month and, and yep. there was never really any consistency. And he wanted something that was, you know, uh, organic to the community. Yep. And, um, you know, uh, one of the famous quotes I always think of when I think of him is he, he always talked about how we maintain the, the Humvees, the weapon systems, the boats and all those things, but we don't 
we don't take care of the primary weapon system of special operations and that's the human body. Yeah. And uh, so that was really his, you know, uh, imprint on the program. And so, uh, you know, we weren't a program of record at SOCOM or anything like that. It was uh, basically two guys in a garage that came in and got it going. So Dallas Wood was the other guy who was who had already been there as as uh, working more on on the athletic training. Yeah, side. I remember him. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, was put in charge of the program. And so uh, Dallas and I and and then we had a SEAL uh, that was attached to us as well, who was uh, a real lifeline for us, not only to connect us to the to the platoons and everything, but also like give us the down and dirty of what guys were going to really respond to and what guys weren't. And so we just started, you know, small training sessions and educational sessions and just grew from there, you know. And then uh, um, same thing, We that, that was a time where there was – so many people that were on that train that it was pretty easy to kind of push that program through SOCOM because everyone knew that not only was the force spraying physically, but they were all, they, the, the community was spraying, you know, from a family standpoint. And and what year was this, Sean? You know, when it really probably got going was right around 07 or so. Okay, so 07. And yeah. prior to that, though, when, when did you show up in, at NSW? You know, I had done some stuff prior to that, but uh, I think I probably got there right in 06-ish, somewhere around Okay, 06. I just wanted to – Yeah. I just wanted to base – I wanted to baseline the the audience in the Mission Critical Team community on the year because, you know, we measure a lot of things, as you know, Sean, post-9-11. Yeah. Um, and so we're five years post-9-11 when you show up at, 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 at Naval Special Warfare, and I'm going to – I'm going to indict myself here a little bit and, and, and the general special operations community that for, for, I'll just say 30 years, we fancied ourselves the most in shape and, and well-prepared. Right. And, and we all know because we see it in athletics, Sean, I'm sure you see it in the NFL and other places you've been is a guy will show up and he's just a freak talent. Yeah. But again, back to the operator life cycle, that doesn't, it can't last forever. And what did you find with all the, the mythology that maybe, you know, you had envisioned at a special operations, you know, organization, what did you find that we were doing well or that mission critical teams writ large were doing well in human performance and what we were doing poorly? You know, that's a great question. I think um, probably not transferring some of the principles that you transfer and other dimensions of the job to the physical components of the job, right? Like, you know, it's yeah, really like, what? like when you think of like your jobs in the, in, in the military, what got you to the next position, you really no longer need those skills anymore because now you need to acquire new skills for yeah. the position. Right. And it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you see a similar situation in professional sports especially with guys that really work hard and that's kind of their identity is like that hard work ethic and just going harder for longer as you say yeah um is also can be your undoing too right like that's what makes you successful but then if you just keep pushing a little bit more and a little bit more um you underestimate how that summates over you know 15 20 year career you know yeah. And um, so I would say 
that the SEAL teams, when I first got there, really, you know, broadened my horizons to, to just that, like the amount of work and, you know, essentially being white belts every day, literally coming to work. And, and there was an old master chief that he was kind of funny when I first got there, because you could tell he, he wanted our program to fail because he did not want, you know, his SEAL teams to, to change from what he... Well, and of course, we believe that we don't need you, Sean. So (laughs) if you haven't gotten that straight yet, you need to get it straight, okay? And (laughs) to be honest with you, that was always my mentality, right? Like my thing was, is you didn't need me to get there. Just like the guys in the NFL don't need me either. They're they're already there. I have to... But we need you to acquire new skills, which I think is your point. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing I needed to show our program needed to show our value, you know what I mean? So yeah. that you would acquire those new skills. And that was the funny thing about this old master chief is you could tell he didn't really want us to succeed, but he would drop these like dimes of wisdom every time he saw you. And, uh, and so, you know, one of his things that he told me right away, he said, you know, basically you're going to show up here every day. And it's like you have a little canister and you need to put tokens in that canister that are contributing to the command. And tomorrow when you show up, your little canister is going to be empty and put as many tokens in it tomorrow as you can, you know? And, uh, you know, so it was just like little things like that that he would say. And then, you know, other more operationally specific things that, you know, if I, I would take it and, you know, it definitely helped in our, you know, development of our program. But I would say, again, when we first got there, a lot of the activities that I saw were the same kind of activities that you would see in BUDS or in the selection. And yep. that it's important to maintain that as a part of the fabric. But, you know, the, the, there was a huge transition from the time most of these guys came into BUDS to where we were in 2007, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And so when you look at the skills of the operator had developed and evolved, the, uh, the fundamental support, the human and the physical and, and mental support of that had, it, it kind of had maintained itself, you know? So yeah. that, that was something I definitely, uh, um, saw, you know, I, right before I got there, I had been working kind of in the professional track and field realm and, and trained some Olympians and everything. And, and even just watching the guys run, it was like, they were going hard, but they weren't, they, there was no like slow, medium and fast speed. It was all the same speed. They couldn't really go hard. Uh, even if they tried, you know what I mean? And yeah. that was a concept we always used in, in sports is if you go too hard on your easy day, soon you'll be going too easy, easy on, on your, your hard, hard day. day. Yeah. yeah. You just have too much residual. Let's stay with the time that you spent before we get to professional sports, Sean, and some of the like very specifics that I'm sure, you know, folks are dying to hear just about takeaways and what works and what doesn't work. You stayed in special operations. Uh, I think you can correct me here, but I think until 2011 or 12 ish time frame, maybe a little bit longer, but either way, because of, the mission critical team audience and everybody can identify with, you know, going from selection to a unit, et cetera, et cetera. But because you were, because you were in Naval special warfare, where did things go in? Of course I was, you know, in the human performance bubble back at the command in, in 2008, but even after that, Sean, like how did things progress 
what ended up for all these ideas that we had and things we wanted to do and things that many mission critical teams want to do, what were the big things inside the military structure that ended up working really well for the broadest number of people? Yeah, that's difficult just because uh, it, it's continued to evolve since I left. So I, sure, I, sure. I'm not sure where it's actually at now. But one thing I, I do think that happened there you know, it was interesting for me when I when I first was going there because I was thinking like all these young guys are just going to want to get after it and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be awesome. And it, it yep. ended up being like the opposite where all the older guys were like, hey, my shoulder really hurts. Do you have something different for me or, you know, my back or whatever? And, um, you know, so again, it went back to, you know, guys were just trying to operate as long as they could especially at that time period, because, you know, the, the surge and all that stuff was going on and guys were finding any way they, they could to, to keep in the fight. Yeah. And so it was a, uh, it was a little different than what I expected as far as like what we were going to see for early buy-in. But that said, I think, you know, the, the physical part was an easy part of it for people to buy into because, you know, that's where you, you tend to see, a lot of these other, you know, this residue we talk about, you know, it manifests itself, whether it's, you know, the physical, yep. um, you know, pain or just muscle tone and tightness or, or whatever. So, so a lot of times the vehicle that guys are trying to fix the, the, the body is not always the, you know, the cause of, of what's going on, you know what I mean? Yep. And so, I think that was probably one of, you know, it was really easy for people to buy into that part of it. At the same time, that was probably one of the more, you know, disappointing parts for me for the program is it still seemed very um, just segregated in terms of the potential of the program. It could have been, I feel like it could have been more integrated from like a more holistic physiological, psychological, emotional, you know, and I, yep. and I think, you know, as the POTIF came around and all those things, they definitely tried to, um, you know, fund those components and bring it all together. But I, I don't know that the, the conceptual framework of it all was really received at maybe the level that I would have, you know, wanted it to be. So um, I guess when I left in I left in 2013 and um, I would probably say that's where I was a little disappointed is it, is it hadn't really, you know, seamlessly been integrated on all levels. Uh, but I'm not sure where it is now. It might be better now than what it was then. So. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get, obviously we'll get to professional sports. Um, let's go through a couple of, it doesn't have to be super specific, Sean, recommendations. They can just be ideas around recommendations or focus areas. Yeah. But for the mission critical team community, let's think about your your standard Mark One Mod Zero recruit who is not they're in the recruit selection and assessment phase. They're not even to an operational team yet, right? They're in their basic and advanced training phase of the first, you know, three to four to five years. If they have Sean Hall's in their kitchen every night, you know, advising them on how to take care of the system. Yeah the whole system, what should they be doing and what should they be staying away from? You know, what uh, urban legends should they be staying away from? Yeah. 
you know, that, that was, uh, that was an area that I, I, I tried to avoid really the selection part of it just because mm. I, I feel like that's, uh, you know, at that point in time, those guys are really trying to prove their potential to yeah. what they can give to the, to the community. And so some of that is, you know, self-reliance on, you know, part of, you know, you think of going through buds is, is really you're going to fail and how do you deal with failure and how do you deal with being, you know, wrong and how do you adjust for that or, fail, you know, just either failing physically or mentally and how are you adjusting for that? Because essentially that's going to be your lifestyle in mission critical teams, right? You're you're always going to be the white belt. You're going to be going to a new course and you got to, you know, acquire that those skills and knowledge as fast as you possibly can. And then how can you absorb that and put it to, so that you can recall it when you need. And, uh, you know, so I think that's the biggest thing about uh, the selection part of it is can you basically compartmentalize hardship and even the winds because sometimes those can be bad if you start feeling yourself you know and uh and so i think really it's it's just that it's it's uh making sure that you're well-rounded enough that you can do the do the job and uh stay as in the moment as possible for yeah. selection you know what i mean so um I, I don't know that that probably, I don't know that that answers your question super direct, but uh, I feel like that's part of the selection. I know everyone wants to increase their, or reduce their attrition rate and selection. And that's difficult because when you've been around greatness, you realize that those people are just different. They think differently. Yeah. And I think those skills can be acquired, but um, that's part of why selection's in place. You want to see who can and can't do that you know what i mean so yeah but even um if i can push it a little bit sean even yeah. you can just you can talk about something even super tactical don't don't shy away from something specific that's just been it's just helped sean holes or other people you saw and i'll give you i'll give you my example i was actually just talking to a young man today who's still in high school and he's he's a big time wrestling recruit and he's gonna he's gonna go somewhere and i hope he comes to navy but he wants to go into special operations. And so obviously I'm trying to get him to come here because I think it would be good for the wrestling program as well. Mm. And, um, but other guys that I know in the last, say, six years, there's been three or four just by virtue of introduction, college lacrosse players from the University of Maryland, and because we live here in Annapolis now, you know, they mentioned they wanted to go into, both of them are in the teams now. Um, but when I first started working with them, they had this question, like Coleman, I have, you know, two years ahead of me of, of basic training and, you know, what should I do? And I said, well, the, the most likely thing that you're doing right now as a, in their case, as a lacrosse player is you did a lot of sprints. You did a ton of deadlifts. You did a ton of power cleans. You have, you have a huge hips and butt. You can do all the power stuff in the world. Yeah. But my guess is, is, if you want to go, if you want to go to a selection process, you're going to spend months of 15, 20, 30, 40 miles on your legs. You're going to run with boats on your head. Are you going to do the Q course? You're going to go to ranger school, you name it. And what I would always tell them is before you even take into consideration, making it through a selection process physically, before we even talked about the mental part is put a backpack on with some weight and go walk on the Appalachian trail for three straight days. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and, and even those little physical things 
you know, and I had somebody tell me, I think, you know, I mentioned to you in an offline conversation before, Sean, like strength and conditioning coach years ago, tell me if you could only do one exercise for him, it was deadlift because he wanted a strong posterior chain. Right. Yeah. And even anything like that that comes to mind for you would be interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we first did kind of a demand analysis, when I first got to the, to the teams and everything, that was essentially the first year was just looking at, you know, movements that guys go through repetitively and, and those sorts of things. And, and so, and you and I have talked about this movement quality is a big part of that. Right. And what goes into movement quality, you have, you know, there's some strength and motor control within movement quality. There's, power and speed. Um, and then you also have to have the endurance to be able to do these movements over time, under fatigue, under pressure, you know, and, and then do it consistently. Right. So, um, and then, you know, it goes back to just those basic kind of fundamental principles of, then you also need the opposite end of that is where you need to have balance and flexibility and then be able to shut the system off so that you can rest and recover. So, you know, really it's just, it's those basic kind of things. And like I said, it's, if you're going to buds or something like that, you're, you're true. The, the thing that you, as a, as a person that's going through selection, your main responsibility is to acquire skills and knowledge as fast as you can. And so knowledge of the position and then the skills, both from mentally and movement. And then uh, with that, it's developing the work capacity for that. Because in, in any sort of selection, what you need to do is you need to be able to show that you can do whatever skill it is slow, and then be able to do it at speed, and then be able to do it under fatigue at speed, and then be able to do it under fatigue at speed and under pressure, and then be able to do that all of those previous criteria consistently, right? Those are the guys we're going to select. When I think of like, you know, if you look at the Bulgarians back in, you know, the eighties, when they would select kids for Olympic lifting camps, they would, they would look at the kids for their vertical jump and vertical jump is a good expression of power. And the kids with the highest vertical jump, they would put them in the Olympic lifting camp. And then they would start to train them on the skills of doing Olympic lifts, which is clean and jerk and snatch are the two lifts. And then once the kids got enough skill within those lifts, they would just crush them with volume. And the kids that still progressed, those were the kids that went to the real Olympic lifting camp. Because now (laughs) if they're already predetermined to express power, but now they can also do that and have a higher work capacity. Therefore, they're going to recover faster. They're going to make more gains over time. Those are the guys we're going to invest our time, yeah. money, and Olympic hopefuls, you know, or become our Olympic hopefuls. And, you know, uh, you know, that's part of what selection is, is like, you don't want just the guy that can do the drill masterfully, right? You want the guy that can do it under, you know, undesirable conditions, and maybe be outgunned and whatever, but has that, he's going to get it done no matter what, you know what I mean? That's, kind of thing. that's, that's gold, Sean. I'm, I'm just going to say this again, acquiring skills and knowledge for given task and developing work capacity, doing a, a set thing, whether physical or tactical, 
slow and then doing it at speed and then doing it at speed under fatigue and then doing it at speed under fatigue and under pressure and doing all those things consistently over and over and over again. And when I think about 95% of the conversations we all end up in, Sean, and, and I think it's great that people are constantly asking these questions, is what is what does a high-performing team do? It, it does that. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think that's where it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation. You know, my juvenile mind back in the day was thinking that it was like this special exercise or this special food or whatever. And now having been around you know, the great ones. I've been around some really great players and I've seen guys will themselves into being great players off of just one thing, a routine. They just have a routine and they stick to the routine. And, you know, at times they will adjust the routine so that they're acquiring new skills or refining skills but it really just comes back to the basics. You think of, I mean, even yourself, you know, that's, I, you know, you're world-class performer, in my opinion, like a mentally mental performer now, but, you know, it, it comes back to just a routine and, you know, and, and not sacrificing that under any conditions, but then also, um, you know, finding ways to create little, you know, knowledge gaps that you may have, and, and then, you know, attack them. And, but it really just comes back to that structure. And then to me, then you can, if you, if you develop the structure, uh, I think you, you've said it a lot, like just developing it in 24 hour intervals, yep. then it's easy to put in good nutrition or a good strength conditioning program or whatever, because it's just part of the structure, you know what I mean? And then, and where that becomes where you start to set like a flywheel effect with that is, is when it becomes more than structure, it becomes your identity because yep. you, you won't, you won't allow, if you identify yourself as an athlete or as a mental performer, you won't allow anything to come in the way of your identity. You know what I mean? Like if you identify, if I identify as an athlete, I'm not going to let myself get out of shape because that's my right. part of who so I am. You, do. you know what I mean? Yeah, it's what I do. And so it's not this separate, externally focused, I want to lose 20 pounds and then, you know, kind of thing. It's just who I am. I'm not going to let myself get out of shape. Let's continue on the operator life cycle, Sean, and also use this as a chance to, um, it's now 2020. You've had seven years in the NFL, um, been part of Super Bowl winning teams, seen lots of different athletes come through training camp and not make NFL rosters and superstar athletes and, you know, all these different things. And, um, I want to, I want to get us beyond selection and for, for the audience, the Mr. Critical team audience to think of themselves now, okay, now we're in our teams, just like, you know, players are, you know, in the case where you are now in the NFL, but just talk a little bit about the transition to athletics Again, back to my the same question I shared with NSW is like, what did you find in athletics that surprised you or in professional athletics, in professional football that surprised you or didn't surprise you, what you saw that taught you something new, some things you saw that you could bring, and, um, and where do we as operators and athletes get the most leverage in 
the, the broader realm of performance and science and sports science, again, given the urban, the urban myths that are out there these days, there's just so much information. So I know that's a lot, but um, I'll just let you riff on that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I think in any profession, once you're selected and you've shown that you, you have potential, your, your number one thing from there is to remove potential from your name. That's what, you know, there's always, you know, there's a common saying in the NFL, potential gets fired kind of thing. And, and as an athlete or as a, as a member of a, a, a mission critical team, that's your number one job as a rookie is to remove potential from your name. And that's refining those, that knowledge and, and, and skills. And then most likely we've all been in those situations where we have to increase our actual work capacity against some of those seasoned veterans that understand, you know, they understand the nuances of when they can rest and when they need to go hard. And as a yep. rookie, you don't understand that yet. You're just going so hard all the time. You just got to go hard all the time because you, you just don't know that first year on the job. Right. And, uh, and so that, that's a big part of it. I think uh, um, with that is, is like finding good mentors. Um, but, you know, I think we always want to know what right looks like. That's always a big part of it. But at the same time, I, I always go back to like, you, you don't want to just take the recipe from a mentor because then you're never, you're probably not even going to be as good as your mentor, right? Because right. You, you probably don't have the same skills or the same, you know. Yeah, and they had, they had their history that built that, that recipe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's a, uh, you know, really what we're talking about here is now just self-discovery, right? Like, how do you learn? How do you, where do you get the most bang for your buck? And, uh, you know, whether it's in the physical realm or, or, you know, learning these different skills or, you know, just building that structure so that if some of these things take more time for you, you just got to build more structure and time into the, to the, to your uh, schedule for that, you know? So, so I think that's, you know, one of the, the next things that I've learned is like, whether it's been in special operations or, or uh, in professional sports, good mentors really bring guys a long way. You can see how, you know, in special operations, guys take care of their gear, the shape they're in, you know, just a lot of different things by the mentors that brought them up. Um, but then I don't think you can stop there. I think you, you just continue to almost acquire more mentors, whether they know it or not over the time. Um, and then based on, you know, the jobs that you, that you uh, change or the roles you take as you're in the organization or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would, from a physical realm, I would say the same thing, right? Like the skills that get you through selection. Now you need to manipulate those things as you get into, you know, more of a senior position. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, an E5 and you're out running and gunning and you want to be big and strong and all those things. Yeah. That's, I understand that. Um, if you're have moved up in the ranks and you're, sitting there pushing paper a lot, you know, we know that there's probably other elements of 
physiology that may help you like cardiovascular fitness has been shown to improve decision making and those sorts of yep. things so now maybe you adjust the program do you really need to be 220 pounds where maybe you doing could, military press yeah yeah you could be a better operator or better professional i should say if you're 205 and in a little better cardiovascular shape as you're getting older you know so yeah Anything that the NFL was doing when you showed up, Sean, that you you thought to yourself, damn, I hadn't even seen that or been exposed to that yet? I wouldn't say that the NFL was doing it. I would say I would say the players, it was probably more I probably learned more from players or around, you know, guys that are in the fight more than professionals. Because it's a self-correcting profession, right? It's visceral, right? Yeah. Yeah. They feel it every day. If you, you know, let your ego go a little bit and you stand back and you watch, especially when you're around the good ones or the great ones, and you just watch how they do things and uh, what tends to stick for them. And, and uh, those were probably the aha moments for me where we're like, you know, in, in professional sports, you just have this pressure cooker of, there's so it's so immediate in the feedback. And I think that's one of the things that was, you know, is, is one of the things that you're just never going to have that same kind of feedback loop in special operations, unless, you know, something wrong, really wrong, some traumatic event happens. But, um, and that that's one of the things we were always searching for in special operations, because you didn't get that, you know, feedback on is your program contributing to success to the mission or not. So right. that's where we really gravitated more towards, you know, doing more sports science type things where we're looking at using technology or some sort of measurement to compare the individual to the individual. And uh, in the NFL, it's much easier and professional sports is much easier. You pretty much are going to the same facility every day you're doing. Yeah, you have the environments pretty, under control, yeah, right? All, all of the environmental factors are set in your favor, you know, so. Now you're still dealing with pretty young guys with a decent amount of money that can go do some things yeah. to undo it all pretty quickly. But um, so that's that's the other part of it. But you know, I would say that that's a big advantage. But I definitely think because of that immediate feedback, some of the players and like how they take care of themselves, um, whether it's you know massage therapy, cold water, hot water therapy. Um, you know, old fashioned sleep, old fashioned sleep. And it, again, just back to routine. It's just routine, but the conditions are set that they can have that routine. And so that, that's probably one of the big things there wasn't, again, it wasn't back to like a magical exercise or food or anything like that. It was conditions were set in their favor and they have that feedback loop regularly. How about, um, you don't have to use any names, Sean, but I'm just curious about some of the aging athletes that you've seen in the last like four or five years. Aging just in the sense that they're getting to the end of their career and they're still performing. Again, you don't have to use any names, but just there's, got, there's a lot of folks listening to the team cast in you know different mission critical teams that are whatever, let's just call it over 40 and still operating. Yeah. And stuff guys were doing who were say post 38 post 40 who were still playing at a pretty high level were they doing anything that you know the audience could benefit from you just you know talking about yeah you know one of the things i think 
that those guys, because they are seasoned veterans and they know when to push and when not, uh, one of the things that was always, you know, something you could you just see in them is they can go, they can do it more consistently. They, they yep. go every day. Um, now they can't, you know, put out these unbelievable feats of strength and all those things, but consistency is their friend. And you would even see that, you know, after we would play, you know, a full season into the playoffs, some of those older guys would take a week, week and a half, and they're right back to it. And they're ready to go. They're ready to roll. Yeah. Because they've built, they, they've, they've ground those grooves so many times, you know, we're talking 10 plus years in the NFL um, that they know what it took to get through the season. And then they, and they know that if they rest any longer than that, then they start to they, seize up. They also, yeah, they also detrain <laughs> faster too. Right. So you yeah. don't have to get ready if you stay ready kind of thing. That's right. <laughs> So uh, that was one of the things that was always interesting to me. You would think some of those guys would have to take a month off or whatever after, you know, getting banged up. But most of those guys, they don't rest long at all. Um, where the younger guys would definitely have to take more time. Um, but again, they weren't, they weren't sure when to go hard and when to, to calm it down either, you know, so where the older guys kind of knew when to, when to rest, but you know, I almost look at a lot of that, like once you get through those, those rookie seasons and those things like, you know, those, those middle of the road operators or even some of the veterans, it's almost like the martial arts kind of senpai type um, senior student type guy where they're starting to ways for those guys to grow is now they're starting to impart their knowledge onto yeah. the younger guys. But at the same time, they're not really acquiring new information. They're just refining what they already do, you know? Yeah. And, and so when you look at an energy from an energy cost standpoint, it's a lot less if you're just refining what you already know versus trying to acquire a bunch of new of things, course. right? You know, so, so just on that life cycle. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, that's where the, the evolution of the physical plan needs to you know, somewhat parallel what you do, whether it's with the teams or whatever, and your mm. professional plan, those, those things that I, that I think probably, you know, now that I, I reflect on it, that's probably done a little bit better in professional sports where guys physical plans reflect where they are in their career a little better than. Yeah. I agree with that. In, uh, you know, special operations community or mission critical teams community. Yeah, there seems to be a little bit of a, this is not, you know, not going after anybody here, but there seems to be a little bit of a, you know, from a, from a physio preparation standpoint, it, it almost becomes, Sean, like administrative, right? When you're no longer in the field, whatever field yeah. you're in, you know, fire, special operations, whatever, you, you, you slide into this administrative physio cycle at the end of your career. And I'm just, this is just you know, Coleman Ruiz's view of the world is I just think, and you mentioned earlier, like cardiovascular health has something to do with decision-making. It's very hard to measure. It's very, very hard to see, but in general, I think it's a, a, I think it's a messaging thing to the rest of the organization. If you're still, you know, if you're still 
staying, it's not just about fitness, but if the, if the physio side of your preparation is still important at the end of your operator life cycle to some degree for what your job is, that sends a signal to everybody else, which is we're all on a cycle. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's okay to be on it where you are, but it's, it's never okay for us to ignore the psychophysiology, the physio, the entire scope of our, you know, human performance program. And we all have different resources and different things. Not everybody's pro sports and not everybody is a special operations unit, but the encouragement here is to, you know, for the whole audience is to think about the, again, the operator life cycle and, and, and how we need to be prepared at each phase. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a, I would say going back in, in those courses that we would put on for the, uh, you know, in special operations, if there was probably one thing that I would do differently is, is do it more in stages like that. Like as you're coming in, you know, we would, we often saw guys that were either at the beginning of their career or the end of their career, get involved with those educational courses that we would do. And, uh, you know, looking back, it would probably would do more kind of stage like, if this is your area of, of where you are in your career path, then these things would probably be most beneficial to you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's drive to the finish line here, Sean. I'll give you the rest of your day back. But um, I try to do a section at the end called, you know, you've heard it, what to do on Monday. And yeah. um, typically we talk about a lot of those things during the conversation, but it's a chance for us to wrap up and say, look, if we were, You've heard me ask Dan Coyle on the episode I did with him. If I dropped him into a team, he didn't know anybody on that team. And with his expertise, you know, what one culture tactic would he put in place immediately? And when I asked uh, on another venue, the head of strength and conditioning at the Cleveland Indians, if I dropped you into a new team, what would you do? And he had mentioned I would assess people for movement quality. Um, that's what I try to do at the end here with the what to do on Monday section. You know, if Sean Holes was dropped into a new mission critical team and, and you had whatever, a day or two days to say, guys, look, th- these are the things we need to stay focused on in terms of human performance and human science. It can be one, it can be five things, but it's only like Sean's look at the world in terms of, you know, performance at whatever stage that's a difficult question i wish i had a good answer like daniel had in his uh i thought daniel Coyle's answer was great um he wrote the book on it so i think he probably had a little bit of prep yeah that that's that's unfair advantage you know um i think first and foremost before i would say anything is um to learn is the culture of the organization consistent with their behaviors and what I mean by that is if I walk into any meeting or practice or physical session or whatever, are the core values of the organization being ex- expressed? And, and I should overtly see them within the first three to five minutes of any of those evolutions. And uh, first and foremost, I think that's that's what I would probably do is just evaluate that and, and you know, ask what are those core values once I, you know, took my notes or whatever. 
Um, because I think just aligning everyone is probably one of the most important things first and foremost is getting everyone going the same direction. I think that's probably what we've talked about here is just, you know, it's, it's just that it's, it's whether that's the communicating operating rhythm or the daily operating rhythm or, you know, the physical operating rhythm, you know, all those things alignment is a, is a really big component for you to be able to perform when you need to be able to perform. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that to our earlier conversation that I, that I think was maybe missed in the mission critical teams component with the human performance initiatives were there was probably too many questions around what's the difference between a human performance workout and me just going to the MWR gym and working out. Like what's the difference there? And the difference is, is the guy that's going to MWR, he's just trying to maintain health or, you know, stay in some good shape. A performance routine, you're preparing for an event. Yep. And that's a much different set of goals, right? And, uh, and there's a consequence for that event, a major consequence. And so that's where like, you know, to me, going back to, those values of the organization and the alignment is really important. And is everyone preparing for the same event for the, at the same rate or with the same intensity across all the domains. And most of the time, especially at the elite levels, it's not about more inputs into the system. It's less inputs into the system and just being clean and concise in that intent and then the methods around it, and then turn everyone loose, you know? And so often it's, you know, it's against people's nature. They want to come and fix all the problems and have the next great solution and put, you know, more programs in place. And, and when you're preparing for an event, you know, you think of it from a martial arts standpoint, a, uh, a football, whatever, you're acquiring all these skills. But if I tell you you're going to compete tomorrow, everything yep. goes very, you know, you're, you're getting rid of all the fat and you're yep. going to do exactly what you're supposed to do that you're the best at. That's what you do. It goes back to those basics to me. You know, I think there's many paths to greatness. I think a lot of people can get to greatness different ways, but when you truly unpack it all, the, the greats do the basics really, really well. And they figure out ways to, just hone those basics when people are resting. And the, the, the great athletes that I've been around, um, what's so funny about the great athletes that I can think of that always come to my mind, like they pushed me so much as a coach, not with new stuff. It was just about like, they wanted real feedback, like yeah. honest feedback now. And like, they push every day, every day. And, and it comes across as almost being selfish. And, and when you look at a lot of the great players or a lot of seal operators, I've been around, sorry, I keep saying seal operators. That's been my, my most exposure. Yeah. It's a community you were in. It's okay. In the community. Um, But they're the same. They're, they're, they're selfish about their development. They're almost selfish about their routine. And, uh, and, and and selfish about their team orientation too, right? The, that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. obviously a big thing too. Um, so, uh, so I think 
yeah, I guess long-winded answer to your question, but I think that would be the first thing is just to analyze and see really if is there alignment and is everyone preparing, you know, with the same intensity for the event because that goes a long way in my opinion. Oh, I I think you're right on, Sean. I didn't think that's the direction you were going to go, but I know you and I were on a different mental performance forum a couple of weeks ago. And I use the analogy of the race car and I'm not a race car guy. I don't really care about cars. Uh, you know, it, they don't really interest me that much, but the analogy always works for me because are we racing the same car or not? And, and if we are, then let's, let's define what demands are on the car and who's driving it and what it needs to do when it, you know, when it shows up on deployment or when it shows up on game day, what inputs, um, and what domains are required to keep the car moving at top speed. And if we can, I think what you're getting at is if we can back into that and prepare the same, you know, entity in this analogy, the car and prepare it the same way for the same event at the appropriate intensity, at the appropriate cycle, consistently under pressure at fatigue, at fatigue, at speed, then you're actually training. Yeah. You know, if you just, you know, picking something the morning of, which frankly is kind of almost like how I train now, just of general fitness, you know, because I don't have an event to prepare for physically. Yeah. But I'm not really training for something. Maybe once or twice a year, I prepare for an event. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the point is well taken. Yeah. I think, yeah, back to that, this, the, the you know, kind of the NWR comment, because the event part wasn't maybe, uh, expressed enough and how important that is there was there's there's a tendency to allow hobbyists basically to, yeah. to happen you know what i mean like this guy his his thing is stand-up paddle boarding so he does right. that and that's how he stays in shape or this guy you know does yoga or this guy does jujitsu or whatever is that really helping prepare for what your real job is you know what i mean but even the analogy of the car when we were on that i, I actually thought about this um you know like is it almost like as the 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 operators are selected initially they're the tires on the car right so yeah. they need like they don't they don't get a lot of decision space they they work really hard and then eventually they make they just need way. air they just need air they need air and, and treads and don't screw up because it's a big <laughs> deal if you screw up right and then you may make your way to the transition or transmission where your transmission, you, you're just a trans, uh, um, you know, shift a few gears. information. Yep. Sure. You're telling the, the tires how to go fast or when to go slow. And then you make, make your way up into, uh, you know, the engine where now you're, you're controlling a few more things, but you still aren't in total control of the car. And then maybe you make your way into the driver's seat where now you're taking in all these inputs and you're determining right. you've, you've gone from a simple problem to a complicated, to a complex, complex. To, yeah, yeah. To almost a chaotic situation where, you know, you got other things going on. Essentially that's what I, what I was thinking about with the car analogy. Like that's literally like the operator life cycle right there, you know yeah. what I mean? So, and the physical and mental components to that all vary but in the same career path, that's the crazy yep. thing about it, you know? Yeah. And can you handle, to your point earlier, Sean, you can be great. You can be a great set of tires and you can handle speed and maybe uh, speed um, with fatigue. 
Yeah. Right. But if you can't handle speed with fatigue under pressure consistently, you can't drive. And then you know? too dynamic or whatever, you know? Yeah. And that's okay, but it gives you a sense of where you are in your own development, you know, and that's a very useful thing to have, obviously. And I think that's when sometimes my standard question is, or my standard answer to questions are like, what, what are SEALs, you know, what are they good at? Or what are spe- special operations or MCT uh, type folks good at? And I, my standard answer usually is, is they're experts at becoming experts. And essentially, that's really what somewhat, you know, the, the potential of that is what gets you into the community. You being able to, you know, demonstrate that time and time again is what keeps you into the community. You know what I mean? So, um, and yeah, I think mission critical team type operators, I think you're right, Sean, is, is even look, even getting out, in my case, getting out of the Navy and a lot of other friends who were not Navy guys, Army fire, whatever that are out in the, you know, regular people now, um, is, you know, in, de- in working in some, some veterans groups with guys transitioning every year, one of the realizations that I've had is probably a mission critical teams person in general, they have, you know, they obviously have other skills, but you transition out of those teams and what probably your number one skill is trainability. Yeah. You know how to learn, you know how to take inputs, you know how to turn inputs into behavior, you know, you know how to create results out of being coached. That, as you know, I'm sure you see athletes who are just not very coachable when they're younger, you know, some aren't, many are. You know, some of that's like just growth motivation. Do they have the motivation to be good at whatever that skill is? And, you know, unfortunately, you know, everyone wants to believe that some of these athletes are, they just love the sport more than anything else. And that's not always the case. There are guys like that, but some guys, they like what the sport gives them, not what they can give to the sport. It's just, they happen to be really talented for that, you know, whatever it is. And I think, I mean, you find that in other endeavors as well, you know, Oh, absolutely. really uh, they're right place, right time, or they were really talented in that area and they don't really love it, but they, they do it anyway, kind of thing, you know? So, and that sometimes happens in sports as well, but uh, yeah, I think uh, this was something I, you know, I, I, I love the, the last dance documentary that's been out. I've, and uh, you know, BJ, BJ Armstrong, he was in that documentary. He was on the first three Pete. Um, but I heard him say one time, uh, you know, coaches, Coaches, in their mindset, they say, you know, if you show up on time and you work hard, uh, you might get an opportunity to play. And athletes often say, you know, I hope the coach gives me an opportunity to play and I'll go out and do my thing. And but what BJ said was in the NBA or in the NFL or whatever, you can't hope to get minutes. You need to go work your minutes. That's oh yeah. To get you and that's what's going to keep you there. Get you there and keep you there and and you know I just think that like drives home that point of, you know, whatever it is, becoming an expert at becoming an expert. Essentially, you just got to go work your minutes. And yeah. uh um and so I guess that's what I don't know, I guess uh that's what I always come back to is working your minutes and setting up structure so that you can just take advantage of that and, and learn as much as you can as, as yeah I mean the a, a similar piece of advice I got and then I'll again I'll, I'll wrap it up here Sean but um 
similar to BJ Armstrong's quote was when I was going through tier one selection for myself, I, I was as nervous as any other guy, you know, and I'm thinking like, Oh God, if I don't, you know, this is going to be challenging. If I don't make it, what's, what am I, am I made of the right stuff? Can I, can I do all the things that I've heard about, you know, tactically and, and for long duration efforts and et cetera, et cetera. And a buddy of mine had already been through, um, he said, Coleman, look, a couple things here. Uh, you're here for a reason. And if you do every single thing you've done to get here at, at plus 1% intensity, you, he said, remember, they need you more than you need them. Just give them a reason to give you minutes, yeah. essentially. And um, that was very encouraging to me, Sean, because it almost gave me like a little boost that don't forget you know, at, at these levels, athletics or otherwise, um, you're here for a reason. The organization actually needs what you are here for. So yeah. don't give them a reason not to give you minutes, you know? Yeah. And it, it sounds so simple, but it was great advice. Yeah, 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 for sure. That was a, you know, another thing that BJ said that, you know, about Michael Jordan was um, the one thing about Michael Jordan was is he would he would always ask, in the middle of a game, what the score was. And it was like a little joke they would run because the rookies would look up and tell him the score. And he would just laugh at them because in Jordan's head, the score was always zero, 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 zero. And so that, that way he never had let up, even as it's a human nature, just to let up if you're up by 20 points or whatever, but he never did. And, uh, and that mindset is what keeps you in the moment, right? Like he, he's just always in the moment. He's not thinking about, oh, we're down and now I got to press or we're up and now I can relax. He just always stays in the moment. And I think that's why I just love that series so much is because obviously Michael Jordan had a lot of like unbelievable attributes, but maybe his best attribute that people don't talk about is his ability to stay in the moment. And, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, again, back to those routines. Um, I know I've been harping on routine. I'm just fascinated with it because the routine, the daily routine is not, not that much different than a routine in the moment, like whether it's a stress moment or whatever, people again, go back to their training, like, you know, the arc locus, you know, uh, quote of, you know, you never rise to your expectation, you fall to the level of your training. People, they figure out routines, even in stressful events, and they get back to those routines. Yep. And so these are just always things that, to me, you can never get good enough at. You just got to put yourself in situations and get better at them all the time. And, you know, that's, that's another kind of maybe a lesson learned that I uh, just being around some of the great athletes that's I always laugh at when I you know watch things on Michael Jordan because people would always say he's got a gambling problem and all those things and he said no I don't have a gambling problem I have a competition problem and yeah. a lot of the great athletes I've been around it's the same thing they cannot turn off the competition it, it's just gambling's another vehicle or, or whatever yeah, it's just it another method it's an argument. They'll start arguments for no reason. They just want competition all the time um, yeah. because that's, you know, they're almost like they're, they're honing their craft all the time. Yeah. They can't get maybe not the best for relationships, but I'm certainly not the person to, uh, to opine on, on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Well, thanks for doing this, Sean. Obviously, you and I get to interact all the time during the year. Um, but this is this is going to be a treat for the Mission Critical Teams community because not everybody, you know, gets to enjoy these conversations in the venues at a regular basis that we get to. So I appreciate you doing it. And um, I'll be seeing you soon. If there's a reason, we'll obviously have you back on. I've committed to, you know, we did the team cast because mainly because of quarantine and I've committed to at least doing it through the end of the year. So uh, as we learn new things in the performance world in general, I'm, I'm going to be leaning on Sean to bring more, uh, just to bring more education to the community of listeners that we have. Uh, so stay tuned for more from Sean, but thanks for doing this, buddy. I appreciate it. No, thanks. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for him. I think uh, if you, if you can keep them going, I, I think it, it's great. It's another way of, uh, you know, like I, I said, uh, couple weeks ago to you just your reach is extended a lot to people that can't make it to the summits and it definitely yeah. makes a difference in people's lives and uh, so i appreciate you and preston doing these for us so really enjoy it thanks